In this episode of The Invisible Vote, we take a unique approach to examining the conversations surrounding voting, crossing party lines. I'll be speaking with the Democrat and the conservative, both who have parents who immigrated to America to enrich and create better lives for their families. These two individuals have very different views on how our country should be governed, but they both believe in the importance of voting and having their voices heard in America. My name's Eric. I'm 38, and I am Gujarati Indian. Uh, it's Northwest India. My dad came from India in the 70s to study chemical engineering and was able to procure employment here. Went back after a couple of years to get married to my mom. They had an arranged marriage. My uh, parents came to LA in uh, the 80s and raised me in Pasadena, California. And my political affiliation is conservative. Name is Ray Chen. I am turning 38 next week. I grew up in China until I was about 11 years old. My parents were divorced and my dad uh, remarried and him and my stepmother moved to the U.S. in 1989. And then I came out to the States in 93. We lived in New York City in Queens. Uh, that's where I always say I grew up. And uh, my political affiliation is Democrat left-leaning. So welcome to what we call the invisible vote. Ray, you know, how much do you feel like your background contributes to your political viewpoint today? Yeah, I think it, I mean, everybody's journey and background really affects uh, their political views and their worldviews, right, of how they look at the world. Uh, and I think a few things really contributed to my affiliation, you know, one being uh immigrant in New York City, in Queens, right, in the early 90s, where uh, our neighborhood, it was very diverse, right? Everybody was an immigrant. You know, Woodside, Queens uh, was heavily Chinese, Colombian, with Korean and Haitians thrown in there, right? And everybody kind of lived side by side. It was a lower middle class, poorer neighborhood, right? And people helped each other, right? And we really lived along and got along with everybody, right? And that was also the time when I made friends with all kinds of different people from different backgrounds, uh, different sexual orientations. Uh, that really, I think, you know, shaped uh, how I would view the world, uh, that type of diversity growing up, right? And then going to the suburbs of Boston, where, you know, it is a very liberal part of the country, uh, and then going to grad school and going to uh, college, you know, it, Everything I think put together uh, influenced me tremendously growing up. But I think also equally as important, you know, my parents came here uh, in '89, right after the uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre in uh, in China, where students were fighting for democracy and freedom, right? Uh, and you know, my my dad indirectly participated in that, and that was part of the reason why we came here. Um, you know, and my family and, you know, his side of the family also has a long history. Um, you know, his dad, my grandfather, was thrown into a communist labor camp uh, in China back in the 50s for speaking up, right? So personal freedom uh, to me became also just from my family, right, an intrinsic part of our value. 
and coming to America, that was really one thing we really sought after, right? Uh, and then, you know, if you look at, you know, somebody like me growing up, you know, without really going into the economics too much, because as a kid growing up, you just didn't care, right? It was much more weighed heavily on the social side of things. So personal freedom in terms of, uh, you know, gay rights, etc. cetera, uh, all these things that we think should be, you know, self-determined by individuals, um, you know, that value system uh, was really instilled in me. Um, I think it has a good influence on my life in setting up the foundation. As I grew up, I developed my own way of thinking um, that was informed by my experiences. Uh, as far as the foundation is concerned, my family is very religious and uh, as Christians, they sought more freedom here to practice their religion and be in an environment that was more Christian focused. That value system is pretty much embedded in me and my religious beliefs, as well as how I view the world. But growing up, I wasn't as dogmatic as they might have been and looked at other aspects of the world that um, would also affect my political views, like economics and uh, regulation, government involvement, and personal freedom. And this was tested when I went to a non-Christian school in college. Uh, I grew up in the private school program in a Christian setting. That uh, really opened my eyes to different views that uh, other people had. And those weren't really negative views, they're just different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And it sharpened my own outlook on life to not really attack or demonize, for lack of a better word, other people of different faiths or backgrounds, but truly really understand where they're coming from. At the same time, learn why I believe what I believe, uh, mm -hmm. not just religiously, but also in these other facets, facets of life. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I went to New York and I met tons of other people uh, from various backgrounds, a lot of Indians, believe it or not, out there mm -hmm. with the same sort of, of disparate uh, worldviews. And again, the same thing happened where I was open to hearing what they had to say, but at the same time, that foundation that I had still informed my worldview, and I was able to still conclude at the same premise that I had originally because I, I had that foundation of values. So, Eric, a question I would pose to you, because in the beginning of the conversation, you considered yourself a conservative, not necessarily a Republican. Let me ask you, is there a difference, you know, for people listening, you know, because I think they hear these words interchangeably, you know, so in your perspective, what is the difference between those, if there even is a difference? I think there's different levels of conservative, whereas Republican tends to be more truncated in terms of political beliefs. There are a lot of aspects of Republicanisms that I will agree with 90% of the time, and then 10% of the time, maybe not so much. So there, there's a difference. There's libertarianism is right in the middle. There's Democrats on the other side. And so libertarianism and Republicanism is more intertwined with what I believe. Both of you guys seem to know 
to have respect for other humans and other people. What's your strategy for understanding someone else's opinion without changing yours, I would say? Because, you know, the political atmosphere is so polarizing, especially these days. How do you understand someone's point of view fully and have it not be as challenging to where you kind of sit? Being open to other people's viewpoint is not necessarily a political thing. It's just a, a human thing. And being able to engage with others should be a norm in society, whether or not they agree with you. I would agree with Eric there, you know, that uh, this is really a human thing, right? But, you know, I, I would stress that to really understand somebody else who might be very different from you is to try to put yourself in their shoes, right? What are their circumstances? What are their human conditions? Uh, where they came from, right? What happened in their past, in their background that shaped their worldviews, right? I really do believe, you know, 90% of the time you could sit down with somebody who is fundamentally very different from you, who holds very different values from you and have a beer or have a meal with them uh, and really talk through, you know, what these differences are and really trying to understand where each other's coming from. And you could see from their perspective, right? Why what they believe makes sense. You know, I, I think we just live, live in a world today where because everything's so fast paced, we're losing that patience, right? We're losing that sympathy, that empathy that we, that we have for our fellow human beings. Uh, and then everything just becomes a sound fight, right? You started to just fight with people on Facebook who you don't even know. There is no nuance in terms of how we talk about other people, right? And I think that, that that's really where fundamentally the problem is. So I'm about to jump into some political questions. Um, so the first question I direct to you, Ray, is what do you make of the state of our country? Oh, I, I, I think we're in the biggest mess, definitely, at least in my lifetime <laughs> that I have been here. You know, we, we touched upon the divisiveness, right, that we're experiencing, the, uh, the everybody just kind of losing patience with one another. Obviously, uh, you know, the big elephant in the room. I mean, we, we, we have a president who is basically pouring fuel on that fire, you know, who has, in my opinion, made uh, the state of our country you know, just so much worse than it was four years ago. And the international community is seeing that too, right? So there was a big article that I read yesterday, uh, you know, from a, a foreign policy website uh, about the inner, you know, communist uh, government in China, uh, some of their inner meetings, right? Basically, the documents that came out of that is that the U.S. is in decline, and it is an opportunity, right, for China to kind of exert their influence and dominance on the world and they laid out specific policies surrounding you know how they're supporting another term of uh donald trump right uh the taliban just endorsed him right i mean these things are all not coincidences where you know domestically i don't i just don't think he has uh any interest in actually governing right he's been campaigning all this time uh to you know rally up his base who which consists a lot of these you know fringe elements 
uh, of society, the white supremacists, which, you know, he still refuses to condemn. I mean, it, it's just, I, I have never seen anything like this, right? Uh, and if you go back to, you know, they're recently uh, circulating on social media with this letter that George Herbert Walker Bush left to Bill Clinton when, when Clinton first got elected. I mean, that almost brought me to tears, right? Where, you know, George Bush was basically saying, hey, you know, dear Bill, I hope you enjoy this. I really did too. Uh, your success is our country's success. You know, we will all be supporting you because at the end of the day, we're all Americans, right? I mean, I, I just think we have lost sight of all of that. Uh, and, and I just have never seen anything like this. Eric, do you agree with that? No, I don't. But I respect Ray's position and and his conclusions. Mine are uh, understandably my own conclusions, seeing as what information is out there. Going back to your your original question, uh, Anthony. Yeah. I think the problem with today's society is we're too we've become very tribalistic with our thought processes and the information that we uh, ourselves. Uh, receive. This is coming in the form of, of the divide between the left and right. We're not really talking to each other. And if we do, it's more combative rather than a constructive debate or even discussion. Um, I think we have to take it upon ourselves to to really calm down and just look at facts from from another perspective and see if what we're being told is really the case with the instance of Trump denying white supremacy, he's done that 17 times um, at the last count, from his campaign in 2016 all the way through uh, today. Sure, he doesn't say it all the time or definitively all the time, but there's lots of records of, of him doing that. As far as the state of the country, economically speaking, right before COVID hit, it was doing fantastic. Uh, regulations were lowered, uh, taxes were lowered, and employment was really high. And I think on those things, the president has done really, really well. And I look forward to that continuing on. So the my, my point with that is, you know, uh, Eric, you mentioned the whole COVID situation, which derailed the economy, right? I think if you look uh, around the globe, and this is really one of the fundamental problems I have with our current president and administration is, you know, it's very egotistic and opportunistic to cater to uh, what he thinks would serve him the best, right? Because if you look at the COVID situation around the world, uh, in a lot of the countries, which are not even wealthy countries, right, say, uh, you know, in Taiwan, uh, in Vietnam, in a lot of these Southeast Asian countries, and in parts of Europe, to a ex- certain extent, uh, where they have done the right things, Right. Where, you know, we've had they've had a more stringent lockdown in the beginning uh, where scientific theories and findings are promoted uh, that has proven to work like something as simple as wearing a mask. Right. Uh, That this president just refused to do. Instead, he politicizes all these different measures. Right. As blue state versus red state. I mean, I think that goes back to your point of, um, you know, us just being really tribal. Uh, And I think he is the pinnacle of that tribalism, you know. So so going back to my original point, you know, we've gone away from this we're all Americans thing to, you know, what is good for me and my people, quote unquote. Eric, 
talking more to Trump, you know, condemning white supremacy. Let me ask you this question. Are all minorities, do you feel, are given a fair shake in America? Let's say economically. I think the opportunities are there. It is more difficult in certain circumstances, of course, for certain groups to, to achieve a certain level than others. But we are coming to a better stage in this country to level that playing field. And today is so much better than 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And we have to appreciate that. Another thing to, to appreciate and going back to some prior discussion points, what my parents left was a democrat socialist country. And that is not something that they want to see here again. In India, the way that the political parties are uh, set up, they're both technically left. They're in a, a democrat system democracy where socialism is the norm. It, the government is set up as a socialist government. In the preamble of the Indian constitution, it says that we are a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic. And what that means is that the government has so much say in what goes on in society. They pretty much control all the industries from banking to mining to healthcare education with some private enterprise that is allowed by the government. And that leads to crony capitalism, bureaucracy, and a lot of inefficiencies that cost a lot of lives. And my parents saw that and uh, from, from just that political perspective. And also being Christian, it was uh, a scary time for them. Uh, even today, there are Christians being murdered or burned alive or beaten in the streets just for their beliefs. So those factors really informed their decision to, to come here, be free, and to be their own person and not have those, those fears of reprisals or those restrictions on how they can conduct their lives. You can say Trump is all these bad things, but in today's election, it's really, you know, do you want your freedoms and do you want what you came here for? Or do you want to go back to what you ran from? And to me, that option is clear. Yeah. And, and Ray, you know, same question. You know, do you feel like all minorities are given a fair shake here in America? Economically? Yeah, no, I think, you know, my answer by this point, right? I, I think it's an emphatic <laughs> no. If you go back to Black people being slaves um, three, four hundred years ago, you know, a lot of people think, okay, you know, that's over with, right? Uh, and then we had uh, segregation, uh, we had the civil rights, you know, a lot of times when I bring these points up, people say, well, you know, that was also a long time ago. I mean, how long do, do we have to kind of repent for the past sins? Uh, but, you know, they don't look at the, the after effect that the, these things policies, right, have generation over generation, where, you know, we still had redlining you know, very recently after Reconstruction, uh, which was a totally failed kind of attempt to bring up equality, right? Where black people cannot own property, they cannot obtain loans that white people could, uh, which really resulted in this disparity in wealth accumulation generation after generation. Uh, and as a result of that, right, you see discrepancies. Uh, it's very clear. And in a lot of our states, uh, counties, 
uh, we still have one form or another of these type of shadow policies, right? Maybe not out in the open, but I hear stories all the time. I mean, I have a friend who just moved to the Boston area from Houston, you know, African-American, and just him calling around uh, to rent a place that people would immediately tell him, hey, you know, places are already rented. And then, you know, somebody else would call and it would be open again, right? I mean, we still see that kind of happening. Um, you know, to Eric's credit, uh, I, I do think things are better uh, than they were before, but they could be a lot better than they are. And I don't believe, you know, we're working towards that, you know, in, in the current political climate. I just want to also respond to Eric's whole, uh, you know, socialism type of thing. I do think it's a little bit of a red herring here. You know, we've, I mean, we're both 38, right? I mean, we've lived through democratic administrations in this country, right? I mean, Bill Clinton presided over a record surplus uh, in the economy when he was president, right? Uh, And then, you know, when Obama came on board, uh, if you remember, we were in the deepest recession that this country has had at that moment, uh, you know, not counting the depression, right, in the 1930s. Uh, And, you know, throughout a lot of policies that the Obama administration enacted, we were able to pull ourselves out of that recession and people's lives became better. You know, these guys did not turn the country into a socialism paradise, right? Nothing of that sort happened. Uh, Business still thrived. Uh, In fact, where I live in the Boston area, I mean, I've never seen the biotech sector, the startup pharmaceutical industry really thrive so much, you know, under the Obama administration. I mean, there were startup companies just, you know, sprouting up every other week. Um, And and, and really, you know, I, I, I think that's being used as a scare tactic, right? I mean, as far as, you know, us sinking into this socialism society, uh, I, I just don't see that happening no matter who's the president. And that's fair. Um, going back to, to India, just to set up um, a background, from India's independence to, let's say, the 1980s, 1990s, uh, early 1990s, uh, the GDP growth of India because of these socialist po- policies was below, two, well, it was below 3%. And that's because... The, the government would not let private enterprise pretty much thrive on its own. And once they started opening up in the 1990s and thereafter, you've seen this explosion of growth, above 7% GDP growth year on year. Um, and that shows that government regulations really detract from the opportunities and the use of talent that's embedded in the citizens of that country. Take it to America, where uh, you see how regulation can really uh, be a detriment to growth. And in certain instances, we do need regulation. Uh, I'm fully on board with there be sensing sensible regulation for, for certain industries, but not so much to the extent that it reduces our, our growth. And, and I feel like now we're getting to more of a uh, real uh, political uh, type of uh, discussion where we can agree to disagree with each other on some of these policies, right? Uh, And and these are just economic policies that, you know, you may think 
would harm society, I think would be better off. Uh, and, and I really young for a time when we can return to this type of discussion, uh, because, uh, you know, right now, I feel like it's not really political discussion. It, it, it's more about, you know, kind of demeaning each other as humans. So discussing economic policy and taxes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we should have more of that. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ray. I, re- I really appreciate that. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, are you worried about the integrity of the 2020 election and why? Yeah, I think the uh, the biggest thing I'm worried about is, uh, uh, you know, we have a president who still refuses, right, to uh, commit to a peaceful transition of power, right? Basically, uh, you know, I, I think his exact, almost exact quote was, uh, he will accept the results of the election if it's a, uh, legitimate election, but then he is also the arbitrator uh, arbiter of what constitutes as a legitimate election, right? That's very concerning. Um, you know, that has never happened, uh, I think, uh, in this country for a very long time, right? Uh, I think we have to go back to the reconstruction period where, you know, there needed to be a compromise, basically, uh, the uh, Republicans at the time, right, who uh, are from the North, had to agree basically to withdraw troops from the south for the president uh the electoral votes to be counted for that president to be to be seated uh but then that caused the whole problem that i was mentioning earlier about then the south going into this period uh of really you know rolling back the times in terms of racial relations right um and and so this is you know obviously very very concerning um i think i was talking to my wife the other day you know i i do believe joe biden would have not only have to win, but he'll have to win by a landslide to basically take the potential of any fraud out of the question uh, for the rest of the Republican Party to come along and say, okay, you know, we can't not really dispute the results here. Uh, Because right now, I really have no faith in the Republican Party breaking away from whatever Trump says, right? Uh, and, and this is, uh, you know, constitutionally, I don't think there's a lot you can do either uh, in, in the case that that happens. So so in that respect, yes, I'm very worried, you know, what happens uh, if Trump doesn't win? What happens if there is a very small margin, right, of victory for Biden? Uh, I, I think that's, uh, that's a legitimate fear a lot of us have. In no other period of time have we had to do unsolicited mail-in ballots for a month-long period. That is totally different than the way we've done absentee ballots, where a voter will solicit um, a ballot from the state or government to then give them a verified ballot that will go directly back to uh, the institution. That is not safe after so many years of these uh, accusations against Trump for voter fraud and finding nothing, you would think that people would be concerned about the integrity of ballots, but for some reason, uh, a lot of people aren't. That's the one thing that really uh, I can't get my my head around. As far as Trump not uh, conceding, I think the question has to be flipped to the other side as well, to be fair. And no one's asked that question really to Biden especially after Hillary Clinton on, at the DNC convention said, under no circumstances should you concede, like I did. 
uh, and that's her, her direct quote from the DNC convention. Nobody's harping on that. Uh, I, would th- I would be fearful of, of that as well if you're concerned about um, Trump's side. As far as the results of the election, I am confident that the American people will be able to make their voice heard. Uh, as far as my expectations, you know, where they stand. So I, I, I do have to correct you there. Okay? Biden has been at that question. Uh, and he's, you know, without a doubt, emphatically has said, I will concede uh, if the result of the election. That was before, before the DNC convention. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I, I believe he's been asked that recently as well. Um, and, and as far as the ballots, now, now maybe I, I'm wrong here because I don't have the information for every state. Um, the way they have done it, at least here in Massachusetts, uh, they're not so much unsolicited ballots that come to you. Uh, what comes to you, and actually I have my ballot here that I'm about to mail out today, you know, what comes to you is not actually the, the physical ballot. It's actually a uh, questionnaire uh, that basically says, hey, do you want your ballot mailed to you? And whereas in the past, you have to make that first step, right, to say, hey, I'm going to be out of the country. I need an excuse. So the, the only changing policy really is now you don't need an excuse to file a ballot to mail it in stuff going in person so i see that as a very good thing so you know i filled it out i said yes please mail me my ballot you know there, there needs there needs to be no excuse uh and then i get my ballot back then so in some way i would say it's a semi solicited right and i see that as a good thing because i think it expands people's ability to vote you know one of the things we, we really do have to talk about is voter suppression I mean you saw the long lines in georgia yesterday in the first day of early voting right people waited eight hours, 10 hours to vote. I mean, and, and there are places, um, you know, especially in rural areas uh, where, you know, a lot of the polling stations have closed. They're forcing a lot of people to travel, you know, tens of miles uh, that may not have the economic means to do so. Uh, so this way, you know, it, it really gives a lot more people the ability to cast that ballot that they may not otherwise have. So I think it's actually a good thing for democracy because one of the things we always complain about the U.S. Uh, in terms of voting is vote, you know, voter participation is very low, right, compared to the total eligible voters. Uh, and then there's always people that cannot get to that uh, polling station. And actually, I, regard, I heard a, a great podcast from, I think, uh, Radiolab uh, did an episode a few years ago about voting in India, right? And, and one of the cool things they do is they want to make sure everybody has a chance to vote. And they had an example of this guy living like hundreds of miles away in the middle of the woods. Uh, and per Indian law, they have to actually build a polling station just for him, you know, within a reasonable walking distance uh, to satisfy the law that, you know, that person could easily get to a polling station, right, to vote. Um, you know, so I, I think for us, anything for me to make you know, people's ability to vote easier uh, w- would be would be a better uh, thing for society. So I only have two more questions left, but the question is this, and this is more of an observation kind of question that I have. I've been interviewing people for this podcast for a while now, and it, to me, it seems like even though Republicans disagree with Joe Biden, they can live with Joe Biden. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but it feels to me that, you know, you can stomach a Joe Biden presidency, but I don't feel like, you know, Democrats can stomach another four years of Trump. 
So I would love to hear from you guys, from you, Eric, first, like, how do you feel four years of Joe Biden would be for you? Do you feel like that would be as detrimental as as what Democrats feel four more years of Trump would be? I mean, personally, based on his campaign policies and the way that the left has taken over the Democrat Party, yes, I am very fearful, and I don't know if I'd be able to stomach that. Yeah, yeah, no, I actually, you know, it's funny. Is I, I recently did a poll, uh, you know, with, with just my Facebook friends, right? I said, hey, let's do an interesting thought experiment, right? Uh, let's say Obama loses to Mitt Romney on the second term, right? So he doesn't get a second term. And instead, we get eight years of Mitt Romney. Uh, but the flip side of that is we avoid Donald Trump altogether, right? So who would take that deal? I, and I think 100% of my Democratic friends raise their hands. They're like, yeah, we loved Obama, but you know what? We could live with a Mitt Romney <laughs> for, for eight years to avoid Donald Trump altogether, right? Because I think at the end of the day, you know, you look at somebody like Joe Biden, right? Somebody like Mitt Romney, which I call him like Republican OG, like, like he's the, you know, the original Republicans, you know, that we grew up with, right? That that my my father knew. You know, I, I think we might disagree. And I even would put George W. Bush into that camp, even though I really disliked him. But I think at the end of the day, in their hearts, they have the best interest of America and American people in their hearts, right? Now, we might disagree with them. I certainly disagree with Mitt Romney on policy. I disagree with George W. Bush on the whole, you know, foreign policy, the monetary policy that he had. But I think whatever he did, it came out of the best place in his heart, what he thought was the best, right, for everybody. The difference with Donald Trump is, as somebody who grew up in New York, I mean, he has always been an egomaniac who always just thought about himself. There was, There is nothing that he does that's not a fraud to somehow enrich himself and you know, I think it's evidence to me and a lot of people. I mean, he has no interest in caring about, you know, the country or or other people. So I think that's a key difference. So I would even take Mitt Romney for eight years. Let me ask you this question. Is your problem mainly with Donald Trump versus Republicans? Uh, I think I, I don't think we should group all Republicans as the same. Right. Mm. Uh, so I think what Donald Trump has essentially exposed, uh, there are a lot of Republicans who will sell out whatever, you know, their platform or their beliefs are, right? If you go back to, uh, I don't know if you saw that, you know, video that was posted by the Lincoln Project uh, a few uh, weeks ago, you know, during the 2016 primary, where there was like 20 Republicans running, right? I mean, you, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, like, I mean, all these guys, right? were basically saying Trump is a disaster, he's a liar, he's a fraud, he will destroy America, right? I mean, no bones about it. Uh, and all of a sudden, because now they uh, are married to him somehow, uh, that they think you know Trump will increase their chances uh, to achieve whatever goal they want to achieve, uh, they've completely reversed all their positions. So I think my problem now, beyond Trump, uh, is with the hypocrisy uh, of a lot of these people uh, in leadership positions in the Republican Party, you know, as, as, as an extension of that. 
And and Eric, you know, you mentioned a minute, you know, earlier in the chat, you know, you talked about the Bill Clinton days. You talked a little bit about that. Um, do you feel like there's any silver lining for any kind of, you know, democratic kind of leadership, you know, that you would that you would say, okay, I can work with this, or or do you feel like it's no hope? And so, you know, whatsoever, you um, just fundamentally across the board disagree with, you know, a lot of the democratic stances on policy. If we're focusing on uh, the whole Democratic Party, I really like Tulsi Gabbard. She uh, not only served this country in the, mil- in the military, but also a really calls to question a lot of the things that uh, the left is trying to propose. She's taking back the the Democrat Party and trying to bring them towards the center and have a conversation with those on the other side of the aisle. Um, I think if more Democrats were like her, there would be uh, it would be more palatable for a Democrat presidency. So I got one more question. Um, you know, we talk to a lot of people on this podcast, and there are some people who who don't want to vote at all. And I would love if you guys, you know, talked about what the importance, especially with your immigrant background, what the importance of voting is to you. And and what would you say to someone who's listening to this, who still just doesn't feel like they want to vote, who might be an immigrant? Let's start with you, Eric. Don't vote for what you left. Uh, that's the strongest thing I can ever say to an immigrant. You know why you came to this country. You came for freedom. You came for economic prosperity. You came for education. All these good things. Don't vote that out. Your vote matters no matter where you are in, this, in, the, in the country. Make your voice heard. And look at all facts. On the other side, people who disagree with you, and on your side, the ones that do agree with you, and then make your decision. To Eric's point, uh, you know, where I came from in China, nobody could vote, right? So so this is uh, something obviously uh, very precious to me, and I think to a lot of people who came from countries uh, that they did not have a choice uh, in their government, in their leadership. Um, you know, and, and what I would say is vote uh, for what you believe in, uh, vote for what you think will create a better society, a more equal society for you, your family, uh, your children moving forward, uh, right? Vote for somebody who will, you you think, enact policies that would put America in a stronger place in the world, uh, you know, and your vote absolutely matters. And, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, if you don't vote, you know, you don't get the complaint. Make sure to check out ABF Creative's newest podcast, The Invisible Vote. Subscribe and rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want more information on The Invisible Vote or even how you can participate in the podcast? Head over to InvisibleVote.com and make sure that you vote on November 3rd.